you for your word and for the opportunity to come before your throne with thanksgiving, come before your throne in peace and in confidence, Father, that we belong here. You want us here. You want us to spend time with you. You have called us to a holy purpose and a fruitful life, a life that's full of promise and prosperity and the goodness of God. And we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen and praise God. Amen. So today we're going to talk about a table in the presence of mine enemies. What does that mean? Table in the presence of mine enemies. If you'll turn to Psalm 23, this probably is the most widely read best known passage of scripture probably most memorized in a way too because it's so short and it's easy to memorize but uh, not many people can't recite the 23rd psalm whether they be saint or sinner and it's that for a purpose I think one of the things that we know is that it is a psalm of comfort Uh, it is amen and a psalm also of confidence in God that we can trust God, uh, that no harm will come to us if we are led by the Spirit of God. Wherever the Good Shepherd leads us is a place that we can trust. So we, we run to the Shepherd. We run to find the will of God. We run to find that place of security and that place of safety in God. God will cause us, the Bible says here, to lie down in green pastures. Amen. Always comforting. Always in that word lie down in green pastures uh, to me indicates that that person has been well fed and that their that that place of good feeding is their permanent abode. So it's no feast and famine or, you know, uh, food in the refrigerator on payday and then it dwindles as, you know, the wheat grows on, you know, never enough. You got me? Uh, Your vats are supposed to overflow. When God leads you, where he guides, he provides. You know, that's a saying, but that is very, very true. So the provision is there when the shepherd leads us. Also, he is able then to cause us to get refreshed in our soul from the weariness of life. So it's, you know, in case you miss being led by the shepherd or you go astray, which sheep often do, he can get you to a point where you come back to him and restores your soul. Oh, God, I'm so sorry I walked away from you. That was the worst time of my life when I wasn't with the Lord. And so he will restore to us our soul or our peace of mind. When it says restores your soul, he restores your peace of mind. He'll lead you in a righteous path, not because you do everything right or because you earned it, but because he got a reputation to keep. <laughs> he, just, he just does what he says he's going to do. So it says for my, his name's sake, it means that in, in order for him to be known as a God of integrity, He has to lead you the right way all the time. He will never lead you into temptation. He will never lead you astray. You can trust his leading. I always tell people, I said, sometimes bad things might happen to you on being led by God, but he always causes you to overcome it, whatever it is. So it's not like, you know, you'll never have trouble because Jesus said you have that in the world. But to be of good cheer, he's overcome the world. So when you're in his will, you are an overcomer. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So he insulates us from bad circumstances. Got me? I mean, I don't care what it is that you feel you're enduring in your situation. You know, he protects you and insulates you from it and keeps you in a place of confidence in him and fearlessness. Amen. He wants us to be fearless. So you see, this is not only a comfort scripture. You know, when you think about comforter and you think about the Holy Spirit, always think empowerment. Don't think somebody that takes you aside because your feelings got hurt and pats you on the head and tells you that you didn't do nothing bad. That's not comfort, amen. That's not the comfort that God is speaking of. But when we talk about the the paraclete, or that's a 
Paracelsus is a Greek word, and it was a word used for the person that helped the runner or the the person in the Olympic Games. They they played a lot of they did a lot of mastery as far as physical strength was concerned in in Greek culture and in Roman culture. And so when they would run races, and you know there are many analogies to running a race in in the New Testament when Paul talks about the body of Christ. He says, run this race with patience, or you must run according to the rules. You have to strive lawfully for mastery. What are we mastering? We're overcoming the old man, and we're walking into the newness of life. But the, the comforter was a person who stood alongside the road and gave you water if you needed it. Or you know how they do in the, some of the marathons. They people throwing water on them. They get refreshed to keep running, not to stop and get petted because you got to exert a little exercise. So when we think about the comfort of God, it keeps us going. It keeps us running. You might get fatigued and do a little pit stop, but God's comfort tells you, get up. You can do this. What are you stopping for? You see that right? You see what the devil's doing over there? You can't stop. You can't sit out. Nothing wrong with you. It was like my mother used to tell me. You know, girl, get on up from there. Ain't nothing wrong with you. And pretty soon you realize, what's well, nothing wrong with you? You understand what I'm saying? You got up and did what you were supposed to do. So, so this is when we talk about the comfort of God, it's a comforting to know that we're never out of the race. Amen. It's a comforting to know that he will strengthen us when we get weak or when we get fearful or anything like that. And verse 5 is where we want to go. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Now, when God talks about a table in the presence of your enemies, what does that mean to most people? I think it's a little confusing. I never really... You know, unless you, you really go to God and try to get it studied. What does that bring to mind to you? A table in the presence of your enemies. Hmm? Anybody? There's no right or wrong answer, okay? You can tell because I'm the l- lousiest test preparer. I give all the same questions, all true. So as I'm not, never puzzle your brain. Huh? But somebody give a stab at it because there's no wrong answer. We're going to expand our understanding. Okay. Huh? To be fed. Why in the presence of your enemies? We just talked about leading us to green pastures so you got fed over there. Getting fed twice. You agree to little thing, you. So is, is that pretty much everybody agree if you're talking about getting fed? Huh? What what you got, sister? I know you got something. Yeah. You're on the right track because really to prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies is saying that God will bring such a peace between you and your enemies that they will we want to be what you are when a table was prepared in the presence of enemies what that was saying is that i am going to share life with this person that was what they did when they got ready to cut covenant with somebody so we're going to talk about that and what that is and how it's important and why that's important for us today to understand our role as Christians in the earth. Because I think sometimes when people oppose God and oppose his kingdom, we take a dislike to them just like they take a dislike to us. It's very easy to do. Because it's some mean people out there. You got me? There are people that don't want to see you coming, especially if you work with them. They work overtime to get you in trouble with the boss to try and set you up to get fired. You know, you you dare not. It used to be you could put up flyers if your church was having a, a something and, and it was no problem. Nowadays, they want to take your name. Who put this up here? And want to take your name and write, that's, that's right, religious harassment. You can't do that around here in the workplace. 
So enemies are advancing on us, but at the same time, God has commanded us to make disciples out of all men. Friends and enemies, that don't mean you're waiting for people to come to church where they've already been cleaned up and everything. But God said make disciples out of all men. That's go into all the world, go into the dark places, go into the place where the people that hate you reside, go into the places that are rough and that are tough and that people don't respect Christians and hate you and want to take you to court, take all your money, take your business, want you to shut down. God says, I prepare a covenant table between you and everybody who hates you. And I will cause them to be at peace with you and become not any more enemies but friends. Amen. So that's really what we need to look at our role in preaching the gospel as. It is God has set up a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, meaning that he has a way for me to win those people over to him. He has a way for me to share Christ with them. He has a way for me to be at peace with them. Bible says when your ways please God, he'll call even your enemies to be at peace with you. So number one in pleasing God, we have to do what God tells us to do. We have to preach the gospel in season and out of season. And that when we release the word of God into the atmosphere, then the enemies start to reveal themselves. All you got to do is prophesy in front of your mirror and see if when you go outside the house, the devil won't have something for you. You got me? Why? Because you release the word of the Lord. It does not matter if you say it to a person. It does not matter if you say it in the realm of prayer. It does not matter when you release that word. Once that re- word is released out of your mouth, you are marked by the enemy. You have an automatic enemy in the, in the devil, and he wants to stop what you're doing. But God is saying not only will, you, will he prepare a table for you, a table was set for a specific reason. Not all tables were set for the purpose of having a meal for sustenance, but tables were also set for guests. They were set for covenants. They were set for uh, hospitality. Uh, Tables are set for different reasons. And this table that God is talking about is the table of covenant is set between you and an enemy. Imagine a person that, that gives you the most trouble all of a sudden worshiping God and praising God and wanting to come to church with you. That's what this is. See, that's what this is. He has prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies. So our job is to recognize when the table is set and take our place at the table when, when people wanted to cut covenant, I'll, I'll tell you basically about the ritual of, of what they called a covenant of strong friendship. The most important aspect of that was the meal. Because the meal was the last step in the covenant. Everything else had been worked out. We'll talk about the preliminary steps. But what that is saying, in the presence of your enemy, God has done, brought you to the last step of covenant with them. In other words, after you sit down at this table and they sit down and they take one little morsel of food, you're no longer enemies, but now you are friends. Not only friends, but a covenant of strong friendship with an everlasting bond that cannot be broken. Amen. It can never be broken. And so when God talks about this table in the presence of your enemies, what he is saying is that you are there to win them over to him. You are his ambassador to cause those people to come into right relationship with God. You are there to present Jesus Christ alive and living to them so they can partake of his flesh and his blood which is the covenant table you got me so it didn't say what was on the table 
What's on that table is the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what you and they partake of so that they can become a part of his body. So God then sets a covenant table before you in the presence of your enemies. I used to think that God would cause you to carry have, have such peace it didn't bother you. You know, if and you were so much at peace that you could eat even with enemies standing around you. Now that I'm looking at it, I understand that what God is talking about is a greater depth to the to the purpose of the meal because I thought like most everybody else it was just something for you to eat. But if somebody is there present with you, they're always invited to that table. You got me? You never ate just by yourself. Laws of hospitality forbid for for uh, anybody in the Middle East will tell you that. When you have a table set, you don't just eat it alone or eat it with just your family. You go out and find neighbors who would want to come and share the meal, just like it was at the Passover. It's always that way. It is said that if a, say for instance, a uh, um, an Arab who, in, in traditionally they're at war with the Jew, if an Arab would enter into a Jewish person's house, just because they're hungry, if they ate some of their food without them even being there, they could no longer lift a hand against that person. That's how strong this table in the presence of your enemies is. It's a covenant binding uh, operation. And it, it binds you in covenant, and that's what that means. So God has allowed us to understand the, the table that he is preparing for us in the presence of those who hate us. There will be people that God is depending upon us. You can send them to heaven or to hell with the way that you respond to them. And God wants us to be ever mindful that even though this person is an enemy now, there is a way to win them over to covenant with God. There's a way to bring them over to God's side. If you will remember that God wants us to win those enemies over so that they can be at peace with us and we can fight and protect one another. Instead of fighting against one another, we start to fight to protect one another. They are on our side. They're in covenant with God and with us. They are brothers and sisters in the Lord now, and we can lay down all animosity, all, all uh, fear. The table in the presence of your enemies is also a move of forgiveness. And that's what that scripture means. That means that there is forgiveness there. So that person is no longer an enemy, but now they are a friend. So as, as you partake of that meal, you become a friend to that person. So this is a picture of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people of God preach the gospel, make disciples of all men. That's got to be fur, uppermost in our minds and in our hearts. So we don't just witness to them. But we invite them to understand the things of God. We continue to invite them. I know they put you off and they tell you, no, we got some relatives, <laughs> not just in-laws, but, you know, blood relatives, nieces and nephews. Every time before our, our, our we have a friends and family dinner, a second Sunday of every month in Cleveland, and uh, uh, our our uh was he my nephew? Yeah, niece, his wife. She said, yeah, we, was, we always tell Miss Nola we ain't coming. But Pastor Shirley called this time. We think we come. You got me? <laughs> you have to extend that invitation, you know, so that people can grow. People can learn. People, because they're in a, a traditional church. And they stick around just because, you know, I don't know. I don't know what they're getting out of it. But, you know, if you get into to that mindset of just tradition, the things that are, are spiritual and that will cause you to grow and cause you to change will make an enemy with you or the person who's inviting you in to do that. You see what I'm saying? And so God is saying he is breaking down all of that animosity. He is breaking down all of that, 
that uh, resistance where people uh, want to argue with you and want to ask you about your doctrine and, and all of that kind of stuff. You know what? You can just say to that person, you know what? Why don't we just make peace? I love you. You love me. We love the Lord. Let's break bread together and have some peace. And so to me, when they accept that invitation, I say, oh, they, we got a hook in them now. See? Because I know that at the fellowship table that God provides for us, it's not just coming to sit down and eat because you're hungry or because, you know, being nice or whatever, whatever, whatever. But it is important when you felt when a Christian fellowships with anybody, it forms an unbreakable spiritual bond that cannot be violated. Because I look at them and say, I say, oh, you eat my food now. I got you. I don't care what kind of religious devil you got on you. I got you now. You know, because I, I know the importance of fellowshipping and, and breaking bread and what that means as far as what God can do with that to tie people together. Food is very important. It is a symbol, not just, it's not just something to eat. You know what I'm saying? But food symbolizes many things. Food symbolizes your status in life. How many of you like steak and seafood? Red lobster for the seafood. Uh, That ain't just a song. But there are certain, how many of you will eat beans and not confess it? See what I'm saying? Well, you know, we like our beans, but when when I say seafood and steak, the hand shot up there. Why? There's a status involved in what you eat. If I... If I if I cook a meal and I invite you over and you smell that I've been cooking ribs and you don't see none, what do you think? They keeping the good stuff and they giving me see their status involved in Come on, y'all, work with me. You know why? Because this is so foreign to, to people, to American people especially. We don't relate to things like this, but it's extremely important. If I put my best out there and I allow you to have as much as you want, what is your reaction to that? Huh? There you go. And you, you, want, to, you want to honor me and receive it. Suppose I put my best out there and you refuse. See, that causes an offense to me. You got me? Because what I have done is I have offered you a part of me in that food. See, we don't, we're not aware of it most of the time. We're, we don't think like that. But if you think about your reactions when people do certain things, like, for instance, if, if somebody shows up at your house at dinner time all the time and they never eat, what would you think? Huh? You understand what I'm saying? It's an inconvenient time. You want them to eat. You can barely eat yourself wondering, you know, are they going to eat? Why don't they eat? What's, what's wrong with me? What's, we take it very personally when we partake and we feed our bodies in somebody that refuses what we offer to them. Or, or some people, I always say that there's grace to receive and there's grace to refuse. And so if you don't do it graciously, you'll cause an offense to that person. You understand what I'm saying? Because people, there's a lot of judgment that goes along with what we eat. Huh? Some of y'all ain't going to like this, but we, we tend to judge each other based on what we put on the inside of ourselves. Why? Because what you partake of, what you, it becomes a part of you. It, it, it indicates what you think about yourself. It indicates the care with which you treat your body or your physical person. It, it indicates many, many things not related just to a taste and what it tastes like and nutrition and that kind of stuff. It really represents who you are 
your status. So when you invite some people into your table, what you are saying is, I value you the same way I value myself. And if you can understand what I'm doing, you will receive what I offer you and take the grace to receive because I am laying it all out here. I'm putting myself on the line. I'm bearing myself to you. I'm exposing myself to you. And why would you reject me? You got to have a good reason. You know, a lot of people, well, I'm fasting right now. You liar. Huh? <laughs> I saw you eat that Twinkie. Huh? And so we're able to judge one another. In fact, the Bible says don't do that. Don't judge your brother based on whether he eats meat or whether he eats vegetables or whether. So there's a place where judgment has to be put aside so that you can become one. See, there's more things at stake in what we eat than whether or not we keep our our vow to ourselves not to partake of certain things or only eat certain things or only eat. There's much more at stake than that. There's there's the value of the other person that's making the offer that's being refused. You see what I'm saying? By the same token, if, if I'm offering you something, and you graciously receive as best you can, it would be an offense for me to try to push it upon you. You got me? And, and force you to receive something that you don't really want to receive if your heart is right in it. You got me? Your heart must be right in these things. If your heart is judgmental and you tend to judge people based on what they eat or don't eat, you will have a hard time appreciating covenant. You'll have a hard time accepting equality between you and another individual. You understand me? There are some people who have a tender conscience about what they put in. They're exempted from, you know, partaking of certain things. But you have to understand that when you set a table for somebody in the presence of God, God expects that you would have fellowship with one another. You would share equally back and forth. There's much more. I'll tell people when they come to some of our services, sometimes what you really came for is after the service as much as during the service, you see. And so some people like to, I call them, they disconnect too quick huh? because they don't want to expose themselves. They don't want you to see them using the fork wrong or, you know, whatever, eating with the elbows on the table. People got all kinds of hang-ups. Aside from thinking fellowship, there's, there's certain status things involved, you know. Uh, if you look and see a table, well, somebody had a table that was set, well set, a perfectly set table. There were so many knives and forks on there, I said, I'd come on there with a magnet and just get all that stuff up from there, <laughs> mix it around. So we go from that, a perfectly set table, and what fork to use and what knife to use. People are very uncomfortable with sitting down, breaking bread, fellowshipping. We have some people that come for, and they, they run out of the door before we can even invite them to dinner because they just can't stand being around people. You understand? But I know that if they would tough it out and sit there one time, that thing would be broken off of them. That discomfort around people would go, you can get healed at a covenant table breaking bread with saints. And don't ever forget it. Understand that when God sets a table for people and you partake one with another, you are partaking on the same level. What that person is saying, I am not higher than you. I am your equal we are friends. There is nothing we will keep from one another. We share everything alike. We are covenant brothers and covenant sisters. And so that sitting down and sharing with them is extremely important in sealing the deal as far as Christians are concerned. In the early church, what they would do, they would have fellowship meals. And they would also have what they call the love feast where they would wash one another's feet symbolizing their submission to one another in love. I remember the first time I was ever at a foot washing, God uh, delivered me of a spirit of racism. 
And if you think you don't have it, you're lying to yourself. I don't know how you can live in this country and not have some prejudice against somebody at some time. Them devils just cling to people. You understand what I'm saying? You've got preconceived ideas about people. You go and people see people different than you. Your mind starts flipping around, wondering. You understand how you're going to be treated. What's this about? What are they like? All that kind of stuff. We're mysteries to one another sometimes. And I remember being in a women's fellowship, and I was the only black person there, but I knew God had sent me there. And I thought I was getting along well with everybody until we had a foot washing. And the first thing that popped in my head was, I ain't washing no white people's feet. And to be honest with you, I wasn't aware that that little thing was in me. But I tell you, it's in a lot of people because we've grown up being beaten up for our color and put down and all that kind of stuff. If you don't think it's in you, you wait until God gets a hold of you and you get into fellowship with somebody and see what won't pop up in your head. And so when I heard that, I got convicted. I said, God, where did that come from? It doesn't matter where it comes from. I know it had to go. And so when I got up there, I didn't wash anybody's feet. This white lady bent down and washed my feet. And if you don't think that caused me to break up in tears, I cried, oh, I'm so sorry, God. Huh? And I I told her, I said, you know, I said, I didn't even know I felt that way. She said, well, sister, she said, we love you. Just let the Lord work because he's worked on all of us. She said, we all got these kind. That's why we do this. She said, it's to get us cleansed and get us ready to go on and serve God. So it doesn't matter what happens to you in the past or in the meantime. What God wants to do at this table is get you up from there a different person. Not be the same as you were when you sat down there. You're going to get up a different person. So if we're going to preach the gospel, we have to see all men as potential friends and not enemies anymore. You've got to see, you've got to lay down the sword against people. All these little factions, we all these different lives that matter around here. You know, we're arguing about whose life matters the most, and we don't even care about life that much in this country. Things we tolerate, we should stop lying to ourselves. So God wants us to live holy for him and to live as brothers and sisters, but to know how to make peace with people and not be enemies with them forever. So we are to make disciples of all men. Man, how do you do that? They won't come to church. They won't do this. They won't do that. But the mandate is still there. And you do it through fellowship. You can't go and give somebody a speech and make them get saved. But if you try and make peace with that person and you attempt to be a person who can bear the olive branch, you know what I'm saying? I don't got nothing against nobody. I'm here to love you and to tell you about the Lord. I'm not here to hurt your feelings, honey. I'm just here to tell you the truth, which is what will help you, you see. And so if we will understand what we're here for and stay focused with that, don't think about all the enemies that you have or all the enemies of who's making trouble for the church or, you know, all the haters out there. And nobody hating you but the devil. you got one hater, and that's him. And I tell you how to make him real mad. You go tell somebody about Jesus. You go pray for somebody sick. You go let the power of God minister to somebody. You think he was mad before, he's going to be real ticked off after that. So we need to seek to bring men into covenant with God through the covenant table. Through the covenant table. Now this can be a real physical meal or it can just be a time of fellowship and laying down. But in order to be relevant in the age that Psalm 23 was written, it's a clear description that these people that were once enemies, when they get up from that table, they will be friends. So the only way you can take somebody who's an enemy and make a friend out of them is to share Christ with them. And he is the Passover. He is the meal. He is the body and the blood of the church. We are to, to be forgiving people. 
the covenant table, the table in the presence of your enemies is a table of forgiveness where we don't strive and we don't bring up the past and we don't bring up trouble. Be careful what you discuss when you sit down to eat with people. You discuss your common goals. You discuss the things you have in common or you want to have in common. You don't strive because what you've done is you've you've made the table of God a table of strife and he wants it to be a table of peace. So setting a table for your enemies in the presence of your enemies is an act of forgiveness, but much more it is a pledge of strong friendship with your enemies. So where there was not a relationship before you sat down and broke bread, when you get up, there is a much stronger relationship now. You know, food preferences tend to distance us from one another, don't they? You know, don't go out to dinner with somebody if you're on a diet. You understand what I'm saying? It, it just just pass or some or just tell them, you know what, I'm just not going to be real good company. Let's do something else. You know what I'm saying? We'll We'll fellowship doing something else. Because what happens is people get offended when you refuse, unless you can find the grace to refuse. When I say grace to refuse, there's a place where... You're, you're stepping outside of that arena is met with mercy and understanding. You got me? And it's not. And make sure you know why you're refusing. Make sure you're not fearful of people or you're uncomfortable around people. You're just going to have to learn how to get comfortable. You understand what I'm saying? Because there are countries that you will go to, if you refuse their table, they will never speak to you. You know, an apology won't do it. But there are places where if you refuse a table, a covenant table, they have a right to take your life. That's how serious it is. And so we need to understand these things because we are people who have overcome the world and we need to get proficient in how to invite people into the things of God. One of the ways to do it is to let go of all unforgiveness, all bitterness, all fear, all animosity, it is not present at the covenant table. So t- setting a table for your enemies is an act, number one, of forgiveness. But the next step is to go on and make a pledge of strong friendship with that person. God always goes the extra mile. In 1 Samuel 18, if you'll turn there, you'll see uh, David and Jonathan. And I'll tell you uh, that this covenant that they cut spoke volumes in ages to come. In fact, it's responsible for the Lord Jesus Christ eventually being born. You got me? And so it goes from generation to generation to generation. Verse In uh, 18, verse 1, and it came to pass... When he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So when you sit down at a table in the presence of your enemies, once you get up, you love that person just like you love yourself. That's why the the first commandment tells you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That means that you invite, you have a potential covenant with everybody that you meet. You're to go out with the intention of winning them over to God's kingdom. You're to go out with the, with the understanding that this is probably the day that person will get witness to and they will be won over. Think in terms of winning them over and not in terms of getting your feelings hurt. Or suppose they reject me or so they're enemies already. You know, they're going to show that. But look at it in terms of I have a table in the presence of my enemy and God has set that table. And when we get up, when we get finished dealing, when I get finished sharing, when I get finished witnessing that to that person, that person will, will be knit to me like my very own soul. I can love that person like I love myself. And that's how it's done. And so he said he made an end. He loved that, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. 
Jonathan loved him as his own soul. In fact, he loved his brother as himself. Saul took him that day and would not let him go any more into his father's house. So David stayed in the house of of Saul because he cut covenant with Saul's son, Jonathan. So from that day forward, Saul adopted David as his own son. In fact, when you see later, and then Saul, because he was so deranged, you know he wanted to kill David. He chased him all around and was looking for him. But when David cornered him in that cave, remember he said, called him my son. That wasn't just what he called every boy. That man was a king. He had adopted David as his own son because David and Jonathan were in covenant together. It says Saul took him that day and wouldn't let him go any more to his father's house. He had a new house. He had a new father. And Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him, gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle or belt belt that held his weapons so when you study the blood covenants that have been there about 10 steps in a covenant when people when people make covenant with one another one step is that blood is shed and commingled between two people what that means is that we are making one life out of two people which means that if if I cut covenant, say with with Miss Nolan, we have we have remnants, fragments of covenant now. You know what I'm saying? It, it, this is the way it is with cultures. We pick out the things we like, and you know disregard the things we don't like about it. But being a godparent is a type of blood covenant. It's a fragment of it. Because what that, say for instance, if I have a blood covenant with Miss Nola, if anything happens to her, God forbid, I have to be responsible for her children to make sure everything in her household is is secure and, and anybody who is lacking has to come to me to take get taken care of. That's the way this type of covenant operates. So we see that, that a similarity to it in God parents, you know. If anything happens to me, you take the kids and you just look at them and say, well, I'll leave here before you will. And we don't think anything more of it. You understand what I'm saying? Why? Because there's nothing to enforce. I said there's nothing to enforce it. There's nothing on the table to enforce it. But in this covenant, there's blood shed. And that blood means something 100% totally different. That blood means every descendant after you, I will have to be friends with. I will have to make peace with. You got me? I will have to undertake and treat them as though they are my own children and take care of them, make sure all the provision is made for them, look out for them, pray for them. Whatever it is that she would have done for them, I have to do for them because of the covenant of blood. We are supposed to have that in force among God's people, but we don't respect it very much. Why? Because we like to opt out of obedience whenever it don't suit us right. Huh? We got an excuse for everything. We don't have to look out. Say, for instance, you know, uh, we've, I've been in churches where, uh, you know, when they have a, a, a conference, and they have all these people volunteering to help. They give them nothing. They'll take the preachers out to Denny's. They take everybody out to lunch and all that kind of stuff. But they'll have volunteers and you've got to feed yourself. You've got to do everything. And I looked at that and I didn't like it. And the Lord said, I don't like it either. He said, don't you ever do it. He said, he said don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. He said, those people are worth working. They're worth feeding. Don't you drag my people out of town without feeding them and taking care of them. You got me? He told me when you provide for them, provide abundance. He said, I never set a table where people didn't eat until they were full. Amen? We don't run out of things. So we do have a blood covenant that's in force with the body of Christ. 
if you keep it. It's there to be kept, but we have to keep it. So the first one was a shedding of blood. Now, you'll find historically in, in what we call, quote, unquote, primitive societies, like, you know, people who are traditionally tribal people, they are much more prone to cut blood covenant and to respect it than people who don't, you know, who can just get their own stuff, do what they want to do. Western people just don't respect things like that too much. We're not taught to do it. But in, in uh, tribal culture, uh, it, it, it was said that um, the um, explorer, um, Dr. Stanley, who was an explorer in Africa, this was before the turn of the, the 20th century, in the 1800s, Dr. Stanley liked to explore, and he went all through the African continent, and people didn't know if he was dead or alive. He went over there, and they lost contact with him. And so they were looking to find out if he were dead or alive. That was a big question in the 1860s or 80s or something like that. And so uh, there was a a, uh, 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 Livingston who, no, Livingston, I'm sorry, was the explorer, Dr. Livingston. Stanley was a reporter who worked for a paper in, in England, and he was sent to find Dr. Livingston. He did the same things. He tried to trace his steps everywhere he got. But, but uh, Stanley found out that he could only get so far, and then he would have trouble out of tribal people that wouldn't let him pass their property and go any further. And he began to inquire. He said, well, have you seen Dr. Livingston? They said, oh, yeah. And they described him to a T. And they said, oh, yeah, he went here and he went there. He's been here and he left already. And so Stanley starts to try to discover how it was that, that, that Livingston can get all over Africa and he couldn't go anywhere. And he found the answer was in the cutting of the covenant, it's in the cutting of blood covenant. What happened was in Africa, if you go into a tribe, they consider you an enemy until they can make friends with you. And the only way they make friends is through the cutting of the covenant. Dr. Livingston had got so good at making covenant with different tribes that when when Stanley caught up with him, he had goats, he had somebody's scepter, some king's rod that he did business with. He had all this stuff and paraphernalia to show to people that he was connected in a big way to somebody they recognized that had a lot of power. So it's really not what you have and what you know, but it's who you're connected to. It's who you're in covenant with that makes all the difference in the world. And so Stanley started cutting covenant himself because he knew that was the only way to get anywhere. Now, what they did in, in cutting covenant is you could send a proxy, a surrogate, a substitute to shed blood in your place. You see how easy the gospel is to preach in some places when you talk about the substitute that shed his blood. I want him. I want him. I want him. He took my sin. I want him. Amen. And so Dr. Livingston had a surrogate that would cut his wrist and commingle blood with every. So did the, all the tribal chiefs. They didn't cut themselves. They'd be dead in no time. So they raise up a substitute, somebody to shed their blood on their behalf so that they could be in friendship with that person. Once that covenant was cut, they let you go anywhere. They had no doubt you were going to turn on them. Huh? And all of a sudden be an enemy. Why was that? Because they knew the power of blood. See, what that covenant says is that we are friends now. And friends means more than just BFF for a minute, and then they say something nasty about you and I fell out with them. It ain't that kind of friend. This is strong friendship, which means that they pledge something against them breaking covenant with you. 
What that says is this. No lie, I break covenant with you, and and I'm going to keep covenant to every generation. Your grandkids, your great-grandkids are going to enjoy life. As long as I'm alive and my descendants are alive, you will have life, I will have life, your descendants will have life, and I will have life. If we violate that, then I swear you can cut my throat. You can come after me. You could send your kids after me to kill me because I reneged. If I didn't, if you had a gas bill that needed to pay it, I refused to pay it. You could send your kids to kill me. See, when you shed blood, a life is pledged against every promise that's made, from the small ones to the big ones. Every promise, which means that if the Lord Jesus Christ does not take care of you, he will take his own life again. You got me? The shedding of blood is a protection against deceit in the covenant. It's not a protection against uh, whether or not you do it for real. It's whether or not you're doing it trying to trick somebody. So there's a safeguard against deceiving somebody or just saying you're going to do it, which we all do. Huh? Thank God for his blood. And it's not just human blood because we'd be dead a lot of us a long time ago. But the assurance of the covenant is against operating deceitfully in it. Saying you're going to do something and at the time you say it, you don't mean it. So what they do is they stipulate a bunch of curses that come upon you if you enter into this covenant deceitfully. The mafia in this nation operates on this principle snitches when they when you know you you get made they call in in mafia language you're when you're a made man you enter into that covenant now if you're just a a run around or go between your your life is history pretty much anyway you do something wrong but the uppers in the organization when they're made they have to enter in truthfully lawfully and without deceit, which means that once we decide we're part of this family, that's why they call it that, because there's a blood tie. What they do oftentimes is pour their blood in a chalice and mingle it and drink it. Huh? That's another form of cover. These things are very binding in the realm of the spirit. They're very powerful still, because if spirits were released when these things happened once, They'll be released again when they happen again. You understand what I'm saying? So the spirits follow the blood. Yeah, and the words that you, you speak over that, that in that ceremony. So what the mafia does is they have a code of ethics and a code of honor, and they pledge to protect family, wife, children, all of that kind of stuff. And... and, and but see, they have so many enemies, they often don't have to carry out much because they kill each other up so much. But what they do have is a code of honor against telling secrets and revealing information that you shouldn't. And one of the curses that they speak on each other is cancer of the throat, which if you look at some of these death records from some mafia people who have been informants or snitched or died in prison you can count cancer of the throat throat cancer throat cancer throat cancer all the way john Gotti died of throat cancer a lot of them you know many of them especially if they rap on each other so you don't tell me this doesn't have force in the realm of the spirit now what happens when you enter into a covenant with the lord jesus christ if you don't enter in deceitfully, if you're just running for shelter to God, trying to hide from the mob or hide from child support or hide from whatever, whatever you're trying to hide from. If you enter into it honestly, the blood of Jesus covers your sin, cancels out curses and penalties that are spoken against you. 
So then a greater table is set for you in the presence of your enemies and you enter into covenant with God. Amen. So this blood setting this table is very, very important. I said it was the last step. The first one being the shedding of blood. So y'all understand why blood is shed, right? Not entering deceitfully is extremely important too. Being honest about what you pledge and understanding that your life is at stake if you back out of this. You back out of it and you're still enemies with that person. They have no right to kill you and they will not take your life. But if you enter in deceitfully, these curses will come upon you. Sometimes they're carried out by spirits and no human hand has to touch you. Amen. And so we have to to respect that. The other thing, too, is um, we said you're no longer enemies. You can't enter into it deceitfully. That's why the Bible reminds you that God is not a man that he should. We don't have a deceitful covenant with him. Amen. He cannot lie. He has sealed himself in with two immutable things that can never be changed, and that is his word, an oath, a promise, which is his word, and an oath, which is the swearing of his life against it. So God swears his life against every promise in the Bible. If it's believed, it can be received. He will carry out every promise without fail. Because he cannot lie. This isn't a deceitful covenant. God isn't telling you he's going to do something for you and then tell you you don't measure up. He'll measure you up. He'll get you to qualify. He'll get you to be in the place where you need to be so you can receive what he has for you. That's how strong this covenant is. There's no weakness in this covenant. This, there's no human flesh to, to carry out anything here. Human flesh was nailed to the tree. All you got now is the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you to empower you to live right so that God can bless you. And when you make up and mess up and live wrong, he forgives you if you repent and confess your sins and say, help me straighten up, Jesus. So there's no curse on this covenant. Well, some of you believe it. I don't know what y'all talking about out there, but I'm, I'm having a good time. So the first was the shedding of blood, commingling of blood, meaning you are now one life. You don't raise up your hand against each other. You don't talk against each other. You don't call each other names. Jesus said if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of the judgment. You don't use that word against. It's a strong word. That's a curse, a word that actually curses people and will follow them throughout their life. You have supernatural power on your words. You don't use that word against a brother. The next thing they exchanged was their belts. You saw Jonathan and David exchange belts, which means that he will defend, they will defend one another to the death. Your belts carried your weapons and things that were important for you in battle. So there's a will defend one another clause. Can you imagine people, some of the people that really don't like you, all of a sudden this is happening in your life with them. That's what God wants. That's what he promises. The next thing, he, Jonathan took off his robe and exchanged it. Your coat represents your protection from the elements and your status in life. So what Jonathan did was he made David royalty just by putting his coat on him. You know, people were serious about covenant in those days. You didn't get up and put on somebody else's something. It meant something. You got me? It meant something. The next thing they did was they did a bloody handshake. They put a, a, a cut in their wrists, and when the palm of the hand filled with blood, they would clasp hands and mingle their blood together, symbolizing one life, not two. So if you love that person as your own soul, you will defend them and not fight against them. You know, this will keep you married. If you, you know, you want them people, I'm just hard to live with. Mm, Not so much. Huh? You let God help you. Why you get married if you're hard to live with? 
When God says he makes of two people one, when you get married, he means that. You take care of one another. You don't abandon one another. Huh? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Huh? And all the married people said, quit picking on me. That's okay. Huh? I heard a preacher preach one time, it, and, and it helped me. It actually did. She said, yeah, she said, we learned how to, if we got mad, we turn our back on each other in bed. But before we went to sleep, I touched his foot with my toe, and, see, and the bond was renewed again. That's the best you can do. Do that. Uh-huh. But let's not be just two separate people forever. God ordained that you would be one flesh for the purpose of survival. Huh? For the purpose of survival. See, when you're one flesh, whatever you say about him is true about you. Whatever you do do for him is done for you. Whatever you give that person is given to you. So let's cut out the shenanigans. Start acting like you respect each other. One other step was that they would exchange shoes. My property for your my property is your property. And the terms of the covenant, your vows. Amen. What do you promise to do for that person? And what do you expect them to promise to do for you? The other step was to exchange tokens of the covenant. In a marriage, it's rings. I'm real suspicious of men that can't find a ring or don't wear rings. Or See, what they really need is you to put it in their nose. You can't find your ring, I'll put it somewhere where every time I touch it, you'll remember where it is. I'll wake up and I'll quit telling, I'll quit telling witchy poo married stories if y'all wake up from it. Huh? I'll make you remember where your ring is. Huh? My husband come, came home one time and said he lost his ring. I said, really? <laughs> what does that make me? Just a thought. He's in heaven with the Lord now, so I can't hurt him anymore he's not in any danger anymore (laughs) whatever uh okay and the last step in the covenant was the meal preparing a table for you in the presence of your enemy not enemies anymore see that's the outcome of that is that you would partake of this meal together sometimes it's good just to humble yourself and eat what's put before you you understand what i'm saying Learn how to understand what you're involved in and what you're doing when you do these things. You know, and, and just fellowship. See, it's refusing is a way to distance your people in your heart from them. Make yourself more exclusive sometimes than God wants you to be. And so God wants us to be available to people. And so is, there's great significance in this. So the meal, the food brings us together. It gives us something to share. It causes us to humble ourselves to one another. I know we we had somebody quit even coming to our church because, you know, they always want to get a flip and take it out. I said, no, the purpose of this is for us to sit down and fellowship together. You know, I just got to the point where I I just said, no, I'm going to tell them what this is about. Before I could explain it, they were gone. So they didn't want fellowship anyway. You understand what I'm saying? They just wanted food. And some people, you can't teach them what is involved here. But I feel that when you fellowship one with another over the breaking of bread, not just bread and wine communion, but in the breaking of bread, it does strengthen the bond between you as believers. You understand what I'm saying? It it keeps you understanding that you are the same. People kind of relax themselves, let their hair down, don't have so much, so many walls up, that kind of stuff. It still carries a significance in that way in causing people to see eye to eye, 
It causes them to share conversation. It causes them to get to know one another. In our ministry, we have to fellowship. We've got to live together pretty much. You know, people look at us and they wonder what we're doing. But, you know, it, I just look at it as, as Old Testament school of the prophets. You know, they had everything in common. The early church had that. People are so distanced and afraid of each other and ashamed and, and, and rejecting of each other and, and haughty. And, you know, if you try to minister truth to people, they get closer in a shell and don't want to come out. You know, um, we ain't turtles. We's people. Uh, we's peoples. Hey? And God has made us one. We are one people in God. We are one flesh and one 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 spirit with him. And so I believe we get to be less of enemies and more of friends when we have this type of fellowship. It's very, very significant in the way God wants it carried out. We have a, a communion table we, in all of that, and that's good. But there are times when fellowship, the breaking of bread, the washing of each other's feet, all of that is necessary in order for submission. I remember we used to at the conferences, we would have foot washings, and they were healing Foot washing by the time we foot that, that water would be dirty. I mean, people bought they they corns and they they clippings and they everything. But w- the spirit of God was so strong in there, you didn't even notice. You stuck your foot in there anyway. Nobody ever s- complained about it until after we poured the water out at the end of the thing. We said, "Huh? What? Why? Who had they? Who had they? Their gabs in that? You know." But it was a healing. We had people here. Arlene, you were there. We had that foot washing. Your husband stood in proxy for for some people that we broke curses over and all that. We had some great stuff happen at the, the foot washings of the Lord. And so this is intimacy, folks. This is covenant intimacy. You know, this is not something that's lewd and unclean, but this is the way God wants us to be intimate and fellowship with one another. But setting a table in the presence of your enemies means much more than just having a meal. It's getting up as one person after that's done. Amen? So why don't we stop? Father, we thank you for your word and for understanding. Thank you, Lord, for covenant blessings that come. When we break bread one with another, we will not forget it, Lord. We will understand that true hospitality includes everybody. You don't want anybody left out. There's no reason a person should come to church and leave hungry in any way. So, Lord, we thank you that you made full provision for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. If anybody needs prayer, come on up and I'll pray.